Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're playing book 37 in the fighting fantasy series, Portal of Evil, by Peter Davril Evans with illustrations by Alan Langford. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I need to make a quick apology for those of you reading my development diary on Patreon. There's no diary gone up this month because I've had a bunch of life stuff getting in the way, some good, some less good. I am still working on my new game book and it's going well, but I haven't had the time to write anything about where I am in the process. I'll try and get something up before the end of the month, even if it's something short. This new game book is, of course, a reward for my wonderful patrons on patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Yes, by signing up and pledging as little as a pound, you can support this podcast and get yourself a whole bunch of gaming materials, as well as access to my previous development diary entries for the book I'm currently working on. I'm also currently in the early stages of putting together a new project, which I hope to be able to announce on next month's main episode, so stay tuned for that. Portal of Evil is one of the books I know nothing about. I definitely saw it when it came out because I can remember the cover illustration by David Gallagher, which shows some kind of monstrous humanoid with a stegosaurus on a leash, which seems less like a sinister threat than a life goal. Who wouldn't want a pet dinosaur? I get the impression we'll be fighting a lot of dinosaurs from the back cover, which always leaves me a bit torn. On the one hand, dinosaurs are cool, and I like things that feature dinosaurs, but on the other hand, I'm someone who was rooting for the dinosaurs from the very first moment of Jurassic Park, so I do tend to feel a bit bad about sticking my sword in them. This is Peter Davril Evans' second book for fighting fantasy, his first being the excellent Beneath Nightmare Castle, which was one of my absolute favourite books that I've covered on this podcast full stop. That one was extremely horror-tinged. It came complete with a fear mechanic, and I'm pleased to see that this book also seems to be aiming for a very consistent atmosphere, albeit a different one. Alan Langford is a cracking illustrator. He's particularly good at naturalistic monsters, as well as providing the definitive illustrations of the fighting fantasy Lizardmen in Island of the Lizard King, and I think he's going to be a really good fit here. In terms of systems, we are in traditional fighting fantasy territory, something I very much appreciate. We've got skill, stamina, and luck, but very little in the way of gear. No gold or magic potions on offer here, and only two provisions in your backpack, which makes this feel like a more dangerous venture. That ties in nicely with Darvel Evans' previous book, which was also very dangerous, and I generally quite like starting off with little resources because it means picking up items through the game book feels just that bit more rewarding. Interesting also to see a lack of any additional stats. I like additional stats when they're done well, but frequently they're not done very well, so it's always a pleasure to see uh, a creator stick to the classics. I've rolled up a character who I've decided to call Welk Window, because nothing sounds more heroic than an alliterative name, at least if you believe Stan Lee. Welk has a skill of 12, a stamina of 24, and a luck of 11, making them an absolute unit. It's been a long while since I had a hero this hench, and I look forward to sending them plummeting to their death at the earliest opportunity. With all the preliminaries out of the way, let's dive straight into Portal of Evil. Far to the east of the great port of Kelfer, 
A line of snow-capped peaks divides the fertile lands from the deserts and wastes that make up the interior of the continent of Kool. To the humans that have settled along the streams that run from the northern half of the range, the peaks are known as the Cloud-High Mountains. Halfway down the range, a spur extending to the west marks the southwest limit of human habitation. Or rather, it did until recently. From the southern half of the range, streams rush through narrow valleys between hills that are covered with impenetrable woodlands and drain into an inland sea. The forest is home to wild beasts and to goblins, whose name for the huge lake is Mlubbs. Mlubbs. I'm going to go with Mlubbs. Quite an onomatopoeic name for a lake is Mlubbs. No human has set foot in the forest within recorded history. Southern tribesmen and, in later centuries, armoured Neuburgers had shunned the inhospitable hills. A few years ago, however, a small band of trailblazers set out from the frontier town of Kleinkastel and disappeared into the forest. Months later, two survivors returned with gold nuggets. Gold. That soft, malleable metal, useless for making weapons or tools or even lodestones, and yet, in a way a magnet. Its matchless lustre attracts not other metals, but human greed. And already, aside from some pretty silly names, this is nicely written. I feel sucked in already. Within days, as if drawn by an invisible force, humanity began to invade the forest from the north and south. Some came alone, with just a pickaxe and a shovel, Others came as families or in entire tribes. Some groups were as big as small armies. There were miners, and there were those who provisioned them, and others who swindled them. There were robbers of all sorts, from desperate outlaws to clerks and lawyers. And finally, there were the Margrave's men come to tax everyone else. There's an old adage that if you want to get rich during a gold strike, sell shovels. So it's nice to see that referenced in this opening background. I wonder who the Margrave's men are. I don't think we've seen the Margrave before, but I could be mistaken. It could possibly be something from Beneath Nightmare Castle. Bridges were slung across raging cataracts. Giant trees were felled. Battalions of man-eating goblins were defeated and dispersed. Bands of outlaws roamed the hills more deadly even than the forest creatures. In an effort to restore law and order and to generate income, the Margrave of Kleinkastel declared the whole forest to be part of his domain. Now his foot soldiers march across the hills, chasing bandits, selling mining licenses, and dealing summarily with unlicensed miners. To the miners, Margrave soldiers are just one more irritation. Like the goblins and the southern bandits, they interfere with the serious business of digging for gold. The most successful miners are already wealthy enough to defy the Margrave. They employ teams of less fortunate migrants to work the richest seams located deep under the higher mountains, and they organise caravans to transport ore from the highland diggings through the forests to Kleinkastel, now a bustling boom town, where equally wealthy merchants wait to weigh assay and buy their loads. One of the most successful mine owners is Gloton. Recently he sent out invitations to selected warriors, including yourself, to come to Kleinkastel and work for him as caravan guards. 
At the time, you had better things to do than trudge back and forth through a hilly forest at the beck and call of a wealthy mine owner, and you declined the offer. Now, however, something is very wrong in the forest. Gloton has sent out a message with another story. Miners, and sometimes entire families, have gone missing from their villages. Strange beasts, the like of which has never been seen before, are terrorising the woodlands. And Gloton pleads for one of Cool's renowned warriors to come to Klein Castell and investigate these mysteries. He declares that he will pay the warrior's own weight in gold in return for restoring normality to the forest. You could refuse neither the appeal for help, nor the lure of such a reward. As always, I'm delighted to see a motivation that mingles philanthropy with filthy lucre. That is something that I think is the ideal mix for the hero in a fantasy story. With the last two coins you possessed, you have bought a map of the area. It is reproduced on the inside front cover of this book. It is indeed, and it's a very simple map with Zagular at the bottom, Neuberg at the top, Lake Mlubs above Zagular, and a very big forest and a very big cloud-high mountain range taking up the majority of the space. Uh, the map is by Leo Hartus, and a very nice map it is too. You have the map safely stowed in your backpack along with what remains of your provisions. After your long journey from Kelfa, you now have enough for only two more meals. You're wearing leather armour, your trusty sword hangs in its sheath at your belt. You reach the forest without incident. However, thanks to a rainstorm and the flooding of a ford, you managed to miss the road that links Neuberg and Festham to Klein Castell and found yourself in the depths of the woodlands. Last night you slept rough in the undergrowth. This morning you came across a well-worn track leading southwest, which you hope will lead you out of the forest and towards Klein Castell, where you expect to find Gloton and offer your services to him for the promised fee. With luck, you will reach the little town before dusk. So there's the background. I'm going to say that's pretty good. I'm going to say that's pretty good. World building, maybe a little bit of a reliance on silly made-up names, but it sets up an intriguing mystery and gives a really good excuse for why there might be many lawless individuals for us to encounter as we go about our quest. So let's get into the first section proper. A line of blood spots crosses the path. The blood is still warm and unclotted. Your hand goes to your sword hilt as you scan the surrounding forest. You can hear nothing, but it is clear that a wounded animal has crossed the path, a very large animal, to judge by the extent of the broken branches and trampled undergrowth that show where the creature crashed into the forest. You follow the trail between the trees and into a clearing where you stop in amazement. The wounded animal is there, but it is not a bear or a wolf or any other woodland beast you have ever seen. It is like an enormous lizard, as big as an ox, with a sail-like frill running the length of its back and supported by spines. Its scaly hide shows several severe gashes. Stroking the monster's snout is an elf woman. As you enter the glade, the monster snarls and the elf woman raises her sword, but then... Instead of attacking, they speak. Both of them say, Help us! Please help us! 
Even as they speak, two soldiers come running into the clearing, swords drawn, and advance towards the wounded beast. Will you help to defend the monster, or will you stand aside and await the outcome of the confrontation? So there's a picture of the dinosaur and the elf woman. It's very good. You can trust Alan Langford to draw you a dinosaur, and his elf woman isn't half bad either. The elf woman caught in the act of drawing her sword and wearing what I can only describe as an unfortunate bowl cut that uh, reminds me significantly of the Romulans out of Star Trek. Nice to see the dinosaurs featured straight away. That pleases me. Obviously, because I am a fan of the old dinosaur, I'm going to help defend the monster. So, uh, yeah, we will take on these soldiers and then hope that uh, the elf and the dinosaur, the name of which eludes me for the moment, don't turn out to be hostile. This is an opportunity for the book to give us a sense of the world that we're inhabiting. First encounter like this can be absolutely critical in giving the player an idea of what to expect. Is this a world in which villainous elf maidens make pacts with talking dinosaurs to destroy? Or is it a world in which thoughtless, thuggish soldiers try and murder people who are just minding their own business. Uh, let's hope for the latter. I mean, neither of these worlds is brilliant in absolute terms, but let's hope for the latter. One of the soldiers runs to attack the monster and the elf woman while you intercept the other. He seems to be in no mood to talk and attempts to barge past you. You fight. So, for the first time this episode, I'm going to fight a soldier. And the soldier has a skill of 5 and a stamina of 8. And if we survive long enough to reduce his stamina to 3 points or less, he turns and runs away into the forest, which is great. One of those things I like seeing in gaming media is people who don't fight to the death. So, for the first time this episode, I'm going to roll some dice. Unsurprisingly, I have successfully reduced the soldier's stamina to two points and he's turned and run into the forest. The monster and the elf woman have fought off the other soldier whom you see limping away between the trees. The monster is very badly wounded and seems to be near death. It is not surprising that you've never seen anything like it before. It is a Spinosaurus, an animal that became extinct millions of years ago. That's a really nice little touch. It's often been observed that Dinosaurs are not that exotic in a world that frequently contains things like dragons and orcs and goblins and sorcerers. So taking the time to specify that in this world, like our own, dinosaurs have been extinct for millions of years is a good way to give yourself permission to treat them as exactly as exotic as they are to denizens of Earth. You ask the elf woman where the dinosaur came from, but it is the Spinosaurus itself that replies. I can speak for myself, warrior, it says. I was once an elf, although I myself find it hard to believe. My entire hunting party was captured by a horde of cursed slave warriors. They took us underground and put us one by one through the dread portal. Could this be the titular portal of evil? I think it could. All my comrades were overcome, their willpower broken, and they became mindless slaves of the portal or whoever controls it. 
I resisted. I would not let my mind be wiped clean. I lost consciousness, and when I awoke, I was as you see me. There are others like me. Many have gone mad. This foul body I inhabit is, I believe, of a sort that is common on the other side of the portal. But only the portal's slaves may go there. No one knows of the extent of this evil except perhaps Gartax. But you must be gone. The forest is a deadly place now. Will you hurriedly rejoin the path and continue towards Klein Castell, or will you try and find out more about Gartax? On the one hand, I'm incorrigibly curious and I wish to know more about Gartax, but on the other hand, we've been given a very clear indication that the thing to do is to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. And for once, I'm going to heed the hint and rejoin the path and continue towards Klein Castell. I'm going to be fascinated when I go through this book with a fine-tooth comb to try and find out whether or not that was the right choice or not. So, onwards to Klein Castell. The track leads you out of the forest and you can make out the town of Klein Castell nestling in a hollow between gentle, grassy slopes. The old town, no more than two cross streets and a jumble of tall, thin houses protected by an ancient fortified wall, has been surrounded by new suburbs. Spacious mansions belonging to the merchants and mine owners alternate with patches of wretched shanty town. The gold rush has caused a frenzy of new building, but the most impressive edifice is still the Margrave's Castle, its turrets outtopping even the grandest of the new villas. As you enter the town, you are amazed at the throng of people. You realise that with evening approaching, you will have to find a bed for the night. Do you have any money? I do not. So, already, I've made a bad decision. That's good to know. Reassuring, in a sense. I always find it a little bit unnerving when I'm playing one of these books and I make a bunch of good decisions. Always leaves me feeling as though an anvil or a piano is due to drop on my head at any moment. It is impossible to find a bed for the night. The town's inns barely have room for all the paying guests. As darkness falls, you are reduced to searching for sheltered doorways in which to huddle. You find a clean, dry corner next to a buttress of the town wall. You lie down, despite the discomfort, and you doze. You wake with a jolt. It's still dark. Someone is prodding you with a stick. You make out two strange shapes, a small humanoid and a two-legged animal that resembles a giant featherless bird. The humanoid, he is a dwarf, check off dwarf on your fighting fantasy bingo card, speaks. Give me everything, everything you've got. Give me that backpack. Hurry it up or a gluda here will rip you to shreds. Do you want to surrender your backpack to this dwarf thief? I mean, there's barely anything in it. Or do you want to make a fight of it? Well, I will make a fight of it. Not because there's anything of particular value in the backpack, but because it's mine and I want to keep it. Whatever Gluda was before she was changed, she is now a Dromaeosaurus, one of the smallest of the long-extinct carnivorous dinosaurs. As you draw your sword, the dwarf steps back. You face your terrible opponent's grasping talons, rending claws, and fang-filled mouth. There is a picture of the dwarf thief with his pet Dromaeosaurus, and it's really good. The 
dinosaur looks very sinister. It's got a forked snake-like tongue and a really malevolent gaze. And the dwarf himself is scarcely less sinister. He's not your kind of friendly, full-bearded dwarf. He's got a kind of hunched posture and pointy ears and a, a little pointy chin and looks every inch the vagabond. The Dromaeosaurus is no mean opponent. It has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 10. But if we succeed in reducing Gluda's stamina to 2, she and the dwarf will run away. So, for the second time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated Gluda and she and the dwarf have run off. I suffered two points of damage, reducing my stamina to 22. There is nothing for you to do now but settle down again on the hard ground and drift back into sleep. At the base of the town wall, darkness still reigns, but the pointed rooftops of Kleinkastel are gilded with the first rays of the morning sun. You wake up, groaning, your body cold and stiff. You are also very hungry. If you do not eat, you will lose four points from your stamina. You can avoid this by eating one meal from your provisions, if you have any. So, deduct either one meal or four stamina points from your adventure sheet. So, fortunately, I have some kedgeri, which is the ideal breakfast for the hero on an adventure. So, we'll scoff the kedgeri, reducing our provisions to one. This is almost the ideal use of provisions for me, in that... For all the silliness, I don't have a huge problem with provisions restoring health, but I also really like it when you need to eat provisions to avoid losing health, because that's what human beings need to do to avoid getting weak. So yeah, this is very, very cool already. Also, this gives you an option that you can, if you prefer try and beg for food on the streets, which is a great touch. Um, I'm eating my kedgeree. I'm happy with my kedgeree. I've got 24 stamina, or 22 stamina now, I should say. I'm not expecting to be in significant danger of running out of stamina anytime soon, so that's fine. You join the excited crowds heading for the market square. You overhear gossip. The town alderman, Margrave and his lieutenants, and the chief priests from the temples have been in conclave for days. A mysterious wizard has arrived to join their deliberations. There will be an announcement at the public meeting today. Klein Castell's dignitaries are gathered together on a platform in the square. Spectators point out for your benefit the most important ones. The Margrave, tall and young, the elderly priests, the merchants and the mine owners, among them Gloten, who addresses the crowd. You all know, shouts the short, stout mine owner, that I have been long worried about the events in the forest. I hope that among you are some brave warriors who have responded to my previous appeals. The Margrave now shares my fears, and we have recent news that the situation is even worse than we had thought. An ancient evil, a gateway between our world and another, has come to life. With its help, a warlord has arisen and commands an ever-growing army of slave warriors. We must unite to form an army of our own, and, to buy time, we must find a champion. 
who will try to find and defeat the warlord. The champion will be chosen by tournament. Contestants, for this position to the platform, please. When you enter the tournament, or will you set out for the forest immediately? See, that's really cool as well. Not only do we have the opportunity to try and win the tournament and be the appointed champion, we can just go, I don't need some rich guy to tell me whether or not I'm a champion. I'm going to go and be a champion all on my own, actually. Uh, my inner anarchist very much approves of that. However, I can't help but feel that whoever wins the tournament might not just get some gear to help them out on their quest. So I am going to enter the tournament because I feel as though I would benefit from some more food at the very least. You are one of a dozen warriors who push through the crowd and climb onto the platform to volunteer for the tournament. Gloton shoes away all the dignitaries except the Margrave. Attendance, he calls. Bring ropes and blindfolds and the animal boxes. Bind each contestant's ankles and blindfold each face, but leave the sword arm free. Place a box in front of each contestant. Turning to you and the other volunteers, he goes on. This first test is of courage, my brave warriors. Have you the courage to remain quite still once the animal is released from its box? And at what point does courage become foolhardiness? Let us see who can remain motionless the longest. Release the animals. You cannot see. You cannot move your feet. You can hear a slithering, rasping noise and then something touches your leg. You control the urge to strike out. Something long and muscular winds itself round your waist. You hear shrieks of loathing and the sounds of fighting as other contestants leap to defend themselves. Feelers with rubbery suckers probe your clothing and adhere to your skin. You can pay quite a lot of money for that sort of experience in some towns, or so I'm led to believe. A heavy body bumps against your legs and the creature climbs higher. A tentacle reaches your throat and winds round your neck. You remember Gloton's words about foolhardiness. The creature is climbing up the front of your body. Is it time to act? Do you want to force yourself to remain still or tear off the blindfold and grab for your sword? I think the time to act is the point at which... I see a glowing corridor with loved ones beckoning me onwards. Uh, up until that point, I think I'm going to try and remain still. Dozens of pairs of dry, leathery lips nuzzle your face. You manage to remain motionless. After what seems like an eternity, the suckered tentacles relax. The heavy weight of the creature's body slithers down your legs. You remove the blindfold and stare at the hideous monstrosity that has been crawling all over you. Well done, says Gloton. Seven of you have passed that test. The animal is a salt sucker and perfectly harmless as long as you keep still. Very clever to deny us the use of the eyes for this one. Um, the unseen is always more frightening than any purple prose you might be able to conjure up about the salt sucker. The second part of the tournament will test your wits. 
One of you at a time, please, and Margrave, your assistance would be appreciated. Thank you. Now then, as you probably know, in Klein Castell's coinage, two brass pieces are worth one silver piece, and two silver pieces are worth one gold piece. I have six coins worth a total of three gold pieces. I will give two coins to one of you, two coins to the Margrave, and I will keep two coins myself. The Margrave's coins are of two different types. My coins are both the same type. What type of coins have I got? The coins you have been given are both brass pieces. So, the choice of answer is silver or gold. Six coins are worth a total of three gold pieces, or six silver pieces, or twelve brass pieces. So, with my two brass pieces, the remaining total value is two gold pieces, one silver piece. So the only way this works is if Gloten is holding two silver pieces because that will leave one gold piece and one silver piece left over and we know that the Margrave is holding two different pieces so Gloten must be holding two silver pieces I think because if he was holding two gold pieces Margrave would only be holding one silver pieces worth of value and that would be two brass pieces and we're told that Margrave's pieces are different. That's reasonably straightforward. When all seven contestants have given their answer, Gloton opens his fist to reveal two silver pieces. You are one of four contestants who gave the correct answer. You step forward to acknowledge the cheers of the crowd. Imagine living in a society where you're so starved for entertainment that watching people do basic mental arithmetic qualifies as a spectacle. The last part of the tournament, announces Glotan, will be a test of skill and swordsmanship. We have four brave warriors here, so let us organise two bouts, the winner to go on to a final duel to find our champion. You are not sure that this is a good plan, and it is also clear that your fellow contestants are also displeased. By the end of the tournament, all the contestants will probably be too badly wounded to venture into the forest. You notice that Gloton's servants are armed with wooden pickaxe handles. Will you suggest to Gloton that these would be less damaging than swords and therefore should be used in the tournaments? Or will you decide the quickest way to prove yourself as champion is to challenge Gloton or the Margrave to a pickaxe handle duel? Ooh, intriguing. So I can either have two fights, or try and have two fights with pickaxe handles, which are a classic weapon of bully boy strike breakers, or... Do I want to challenge Gloton or the Margrave to a pickaxe handle duel? I'm going to challenge the Margrave to a pickaxe handle duel because he's the poshest person present and the chance to potentially inflict some minor bruising on landed gentry is just too good to miss. <laughs> and the Margrave is reacting very much as the landed gentry class generally react to having their hereditary power challenged. The Margrave is outraged at your suggestion and orders his men to seize you. Gloten protests, but the Margrave is incensed that a mere adventurer should challenge him to a duel, and insulted by the suggestion that he should use such a plebeian weapon as a pickaxe handle. 
he instructs the soldiers of his bodyguard to escort you out of the town. You are banished on pain of death. Fuming at the injustice of this sentence, you are determined to prove your worth. You set off into the forest. So, very poor decision, but, I mean, sometimes in these things, the... Uh, the local nobility are like, you've got spunk, young fella. I admire that. So, uh, yeah, on this occasion, more of a traditional uh, noble than that. Hey-ho. In spite of the jagged terrain and thick undergrowth, this part of the forest is a maze of small paths. Most of them run east-west between the mine workings in the mountains and Klein Castell. Branches lead northwards into the hills and southwards into the heart of the forest. The highest peaks of the cloud-high mountains can be seen above the treetops to the east, and you decide that this is the direction in which you will travel. You have been walking for some time when you hear heavy footsteps behind you. You push on to a clearing, where you turn and see your pursuers emerging from the trees. There is a man in the background, but you have eyes only for the bizarre beast that is trotting towards you, uttering high-pitched squawks. It is the size of an ostrich, but with no feathers and with claws instead of wings. The eyes in its beaked head glare down at you as it approaches. It is a Struthiomimus, and it became extinct millions of years ago, but here it is apparently very much alive and intent on attacking you. So there's a picture of the Struthiomimus. It's very good. I'm intrigued, I must say, by the figure in the background for all that we were told not to pay too much attention to it. It is somewhat androgynous, skeletally thin and bald with a cadaverous face that's very similar to the cadaverous face of the fellow on the front cover of this book. And I'm intrigued to find out more about him. But first, I must deal with the Struthiomimus, which has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 12, and a name that's uh, an awful lot of fun to say. So, I'm going to roll some dice. I completely forgot to say that something interesting happens after three rounds of combat, and I've now done those three rounds of combat, and I suffered no damage and reduced the Struthiomimus to eight stamina points but now something occurs in the midst of the deadly interplay of sword claws and beak you become aware of a remarkable noise a low booming repetitive bellow that distracts you from your fight the struthiomimus hears it too with a squawk it turns away from you and trots back to the man standing at the edge of the clearing you see from the man's grey pallor with his bony limbs poking through tattered clothes and his expressionless, pinched face, that he is one of the enslaved humanoids that have been terrorising this area. It is he who is producing the weird noise, attracting the creature to him. He places a rope round its neck and then draws a notched scimitar. He advances towards you. Do you have a ring of zombie warding? Of course not. Why would I have such a thing? I always make terrible decisions. So, uh, without the ring, I guess I'm going to have to fight this undead fellow. You cannot escape from this fight. If you try and retreat, the Struthiomimus will run you down within minutes. So, we have to fight the slave warrior now. 
And to be honest, that's a good thing because the slave warrior has a skill of six and a stamina of nine, making him a much less difficult fight than his dinosaur pet. There's some really clever encounter design going on in this. This is tremendous. So, um, it does mean that yet again, however, I'm going to have to roll some dice. So that's what I'm going to do now. Dice rolling. I have defeated the slave warrior who, unlike the various dinosaurs, uh, doesn't run away and just stands and fights till it drops. So I can now either stay in the clearing to search the body or leave immediately. I will search the body. I need some sweet, sweet loot. With some reluctance, you tug at the filthy rags covering the slave warrior's corpse. Then you hear a ferocious squawk and a stampede of footsteps, and before you can move, the Struthiomimus crashes into you. As you attempt to pick yourself up, the creature kicks you and snaps at you with its beak to force you away from the body of its master. You retreat from the clearing, rubbing your bruises. Deduct three points from your stamina. Stamina now 19. You continue eastwards along the path. On your left, rising above the trees, the bare brown hillsides are pockmarked with mine entrances. You reach a village, an unplanned cluster of cabins, home for the miners and their families. But the village seems to have been abandoned. There is no sound, and the doors and shutters hang loose on their hinges, revealing dark, silent interiors. You pause at the edge of the village, and you can hear a noise from the path behind you. It is the tramp of marching feet and the guttural sound of men's voices speaking in the local dialect. Will you wait on the path for the men to arrive, or will you quickly find a hiding place in the village? Let's go and hide in the village. You run to the centre of the village and into a wooden building that is larger than most of the huts. As you become accustomed to the gloom, you see overturned tables and chairs, broken bottles and scattered tankards. It is a tavern, and it has been ransacked. At the back of the room is a counter, and behind it a row of huge beer barrels, all broken open but still sufficiently intact to serve as a hiding place. You pull aside the shattered planks at a barrel's end and begin to crawl inside, and something moves at the other end. This barrel is the home of a metamaggot, a voracious carnivore that lives as a simple organism, although it is in fact made up of thousands of tiny white maggots. That's grim sort of maggoty golem. It moves like a fat, pale snake, and it attacks by launching individual maggots at its victim. These maggots explode on impact, releasing acidic juices. You cannot hope to kill all the maggots, but when the metamaggot's stamina is reduced to zero, it will break up into tiny fragments that present no further threat. The metamaggot has a skill of six and a stamina of seven, but it is a race against time. We've got to defeat it within four rounds of combat, which shouldn't be a problem. Once again, I'm going to roll some very icky dice. I have defeated the Meta Maggot in the allotted time without any difficulty. I note that there's a cool little thing here that by giving the Meta Maggot an odd number of stamina points this means that if you do lose or draw one round of combat 
you can still defeat the Meta Maggot by testing your luck on the final round of combat, giving you a potential additional out, and also providing you with a reason to use luck in combat, which otherwise you don't really have. This is advanced level stuff. I hope the hiding in a barrel turns out to be a good plan, now that I've uh, had to deal with this rather disgusting monster. You manage to hide only just in time. As you crouch inside the barrel, you hear footsteps crossing the tavern floor. A voice shouts, Nothing much left in here, Sergeant. Not even a drop of ale. The reply from the street is, Have a good look round, trooper. All the same, you never know what you might find. It's clear that a troop of the Margrave soldiers are searching the village. The trooper approaches the barrels behind the bar. Test your luck. First luck test of the adventure. I roll an 8, well below my luck of 11. I am lucky. Luck now 10. The soldier looks at the barrels, peering inside some and kicking the ends of others. The one next to yours disintegrates under the impact of an armoured boot. But the soldier fails to look in your barrel, and as he stamps out of the tavern, you climb out of the barrel. You find a back door. Next to it is a stack of unlit torches, bound reeds soaked in pitch. You can take one, putting it in your backpack as you slip through the door. So we found our first bit of treasure, a solitary torch. It's not much, but I'll take it. You find yourself on a narrow track overshadowed by forest trees. You head eastward and, out of sight of the village, you rejoin the main path you had been on before you entered the village. There are fewer paths crisscrossing the forest as you continue eastwards, although the path you are on is still well defined. The woodland round you is dark and silent. You are beginning to wonder whether you have penetrated too far into the forest, and then you see two bodies lying on the path ahead. You approach cautiously. The dead creatures are scurrilers, long-tailed fur-covered humanoids who live in trees and are very rarely seen by ground dwellers. These two had been on a hunting trip. Each had a bow and an empty quiver and a bag of game birds. They've been shot down with a crossbow. The metal bolts are still embedded in their green leather clothing and soft brown fur. It's rather sad. Will you search the bodies or pass by and continue along the path? We will search the bodies. One of the scurrilers has a purse containing a gold piece. We're rich, boys. We're rich. That's what I'm talking about. You glance around the forest and realise with a start that there are two more scurrilers perched in the branches, almost invisible against the green and brown of the trees. Knives drawn, they jump to the ground and move to attack you from two sides. They chatter and squeak at you in a language you do not understand. You'll have to fight them or escape into the forest. You don't really want to fight these largely harmless-seeming beings. I just trying to get on with life so i think i'm going to run through the trees the scurrilers chase you and you feel a knife blade slice across your back lose two points from your stamina so stamina now 17 slowly but surely that stamina is draining in the forest you can outdistance your pursuers on the ground but they take to the trees jumping and swinging from branch to branch and are able to keep up with you as well as to pelt you with a steady rain of nuts and twigs Eventually, they tire of this activity and you stop running. You try to orientate yourself. You think you have been running in a southeasterly direction. 
you are on a narrow trail that takes you further in the same direction, so you continue along it. The narrow path takes you up a ridge, and as you reach the top, you stop in amazement. You are looking down into the most beautiful garden you have ever seen. It is a large, bowl-shaped dell, clear of trees except for a fringe of woodland round its circumference and a graceful spinney at its centre. The stream flows from a waterfall at the edge of the dell to a small lake near the central group of trees. Dense patches of shrubs and flowers decorate the lush grass which carpets the ground. Cannot believe that such a place could occur naturally in the middle of a wild forest. You also notice that the garden has been damaged. Booted feet have trodden down the grass and the plants have been cut with swords. And then you see that a rope ladder only half unrolled, hanging against the trunk of a nearby tree. Looking up into the branches, you notice a wooden platform. Will you cross the clearing or will you climb the tree to reach the platform? Ooh, decisions, decisions. I mean, this feels like classical elf country, but the author has been doing a good job of messing with my fantasy cliché preconceptions, so who knows? Obviously, once upon a time in the Forest of Doom, there was an ape-man at the top of a rope ladder, so that's also in the back of my mind. I wonder if it was in the back of the author's mind. You clamber upwards from branch to branch until you reach the rope ladder. You use this to complete your ascent to the wooden structure that you could see from the ground. It is a platform constructed out of whole branches lashed together with creepers. You reach the platform and peer over the edge. At first sight it looks empty. Then a strange being steps forward from next to the tree's trunk. She is very tall and thin with wrinkled brown skin and brown hair. Her clothes are made of brown leaves. And when you look closely, you are sure that she has some of the leaves attached to her. As if they had grown from her arms and fingers and head. She looks old and stern, but her voice is gentle and sorrowful. Come up, stand with me on my guard post. I am a Lignea. My duty is to protect the forest. What of you? You pull yourself up onto the platform. Do you have a weapon? I do. So many interesting hints at strange things that could have happened to us if we took another path. I like that. I should have guessed it, says Lignia. Another human brings an accursed metal blade to ravage the trees of my woodland. Approach no closer. He begins to whisper, and trace a pattern in the air. You are sure she is casting a spell against you. Will you interrupt her, protesting that you mean no harm to the forest, attack her, or wait to see the result of her incantation? I will assume that she's casting a defensive incantation rather than a stabby one. It could be a stabby one, but I'm going to wait and find out. Make no sudden moves. I think that's the best plan. Lignia's chant ceases, her hands freeze in midair. You wait for something to happen. You become aware of slight movements on your clothing and equipment. Your hand flies to your sword, but as you grasp the hilt, it turns to red dust. There is nothing left of the blade except a scabbard full of rust. Reduce your skill by four points while you are without a weapon. So, skill now eight. 
Oh dear. You open your backpack. Everything made of metal has been destroyed, including the miner's helmet, if you had one, and any coins you may have had. The ring of zombie warding, if you had it, has crumbled into fragments. So we wave farewell to our single gold piece. Alas. To make matters worse, your metal buttons and buckles have disappeared. You have to hold your clothes round you with your hands. Use vein stems to secure your clothing, Lignir advises. You will be better off without metal. It has always been a source of great misery for the humanoid races. My ladder has enrolled itself and now you must leave. Do not venture into my garden dell, but go round it and continue your journey. When you obey this order, well, are you so angry that you feel you must attack Lignia? Well, I've no one to blame but myself, quite honestly, for just letting her do it. So I'm going to take it on the chin. I'm going to take it on the chin. I'm going to slope down and with my trousers fastened with bits of bark, make my way sadly round the dell. Coming down from the hillside, you plunge into the dark shadows of the trees and you struggle southwards through the undergrowth deeper into the forest. Somewhere in this wilderness lurks the evil power that you seek, the power that transforms ordinary beings into shriveled, faceless, mindless slaves, the power that summons obsolete monsters from ages past. You suspect that the evil has been awakened by the delving of gold-hungry miners, and you worry that you have missed the correct mind, that you have already travelled too far. However, the path that you are now crossing still runs from east to west. You assume that there are still mines to be found in the east. You resolve to continue that way in the morning, but it is now dusk and you have found a clearing in which to sleep. Your eye is caught by a nearby tree that towers above the rest of the forest. As you watch, you see lights among the branches. When you look down again, you find yourself surrounded by slender, green-clothed bowmen. They are wood elves, and they are notching arrows to their bows. Will you run or try and talk to them? There's a sort of desperate hint of Withnal and I coming. Please help, I've gone on a quest by a mistake. I shouldn't have done this, I'm a complete buffoon. Please take pity on me. My trousers are held up with bits of wood. Standing in the middle of a circle of taut bows, you ask the wood elves what they want of you, but they remain silent. You are not afraid. Wood elves are not usually unfriendly to humans. Another band of elves enters the clearing, and you realise from her bearing and her costume that the leader is the queen of the tribe. You bow as she approaches. She is stern and unsmiling and asks you for your business. So there's a picture... The elves are quite short and skinny, as you would expect. They've all got exactly the same hairdo, which is one of those things that's uh, very common in fantasy races. And the queen is, I would say, considerably taller than the rest of them. And she's got a stupid little crown on. I mean, a really stupid little crown. I'm enjoying just how stupid the little crown is. Not the best illustration I've seen thus far but still quite nice and characterful. She is stern and unsmiling and asks you your business. You explain that you are searching for the source of the evil that has arisen in this forest. Then we cannot help you, she says. 
you should travel east and up into the mountains, but tomorrow we will escort you there. Tonight you must rest with us. You thank her for her kind offer and accept it. In fact, you have little choice as a dozen arrows are still aimed at you. Forgive our suspicions, adds the queen. These days it is hard to know whom to trust. The elves form a marching column with you at its centre and move off into the forest. You are walking along woodland paths, but the trees seem misty and your footsteps are muffled. Do you have a potion of true seeing? No, I don't have anything except a torch made of reeds. I'm just in terrible shape. The narrow path passes a wooden hut. The marching column halts and the elf queen opens the hut's door and invites you to enter. Rest here tonight, she says, and tomorrow some of my elves will take you to your destination. You enter the hut and the door closes behind you. There is just one windowless room containing only a straw mattress on which you sit. You can eat a meal from your provisions at this point and restore up to four points of stamina. Well, I've been nursing this packet of baklava for some considerable time. I'm going to scoff it and return my stamina to 21. Farewell provisions. We hardly knew you. There seems nothing to do in the darkness but go to sleep and await the morning. Do you want to do this or leave the hut and explore your surroundings? I will go to sleep. There's a whole bunch of elves who can canonically see in the dark. So me blundering around like the world's most incompetent thief, pausing every once in a while to hoik up my falling down trousers. Yeah, that doesn't strike me as a great plan, so I guess we'll just, just get 40 winks and hope that tomorrow brings something better. During the night you hear the door open. You keep still, pretending to be asleep as two elves, moving with the mechanical stiffness that reveals them to be slave warriors enter the room. They are carrying a blanket that shines with a luminous glow in the darkness, and they drape it over you and then leave. The blanket is very welcome. It is warm and comfortable. You cannot stop worrying about the fact that the elves look like slave warriors and the blanket is almost too relaxing. You find it hard to move your limbs. With a huge effort you throw the luminous thing off the bed. You realise that it was magical. You are helplessly weak but gradually as you sit shivering on the bed you recover your strength. Your limbs will feel shaky for several days however. Deduct one point. From your initial skill for the rest of this adventure, you must try to get out of this hut. So my effective skill is now seven. So I've lost an effective five points of skill from my unbelievably high start. This is, this is even for me a poor showing. You approach the door and a voice says, Don't touch. You step back as the door continues. Don't be alarmed, I'm not actually a talking door, I'm just an elven enchantment, and I, I sort of hover round the door and keep it locked from the inside. I'll open it if you say the right number. You ask what the right number is. I can't tell you that, says the voice. I'm not allowed to say any numbers at all, just in case, but life's been very dull since the elves were all turned into slave warriors, so I'll give you a clue. If numbers were letters, my number would be in left. 
but not in a little soft felt elf. Is that any help? I'm afraid you only get one chance to say the right number. So a little riddle. A little soft felt elf. If we take the capital letters of that, that's L S F E, meaning that T is not in those words. And T is the 20th letter of the alphabet. So I guess it's paragraph 20. It is not paragraph 20. I only get one go. So yeah, I'm frustrated now. I was so sure about that. Hey-ho, I will return to that on a future playthrough, I think. You have to find another way out of this prison. With some difficulty, you pull up a couple of floorboards. You peer down into the darkness, then recoil as you realise that you can see branches waving in the breeze far below you. This hut is in the highest limbs of the elves' tree home. You must try to climb down. A length of rope would be very useful. Do you have one? Of course I don't have a length of rope. What do you take me for? Some kind of competent adventurer? Lots of things to find on my next playthrough, I have to say. You are in the topmost part of the elves' tree home, and during the first part of your descent there are enough branches to provide plenty of handholds. You also make use of some of the ramps and steps that the elves have built to link their dwellings. The illusion that the elf queen cast on you has now dissipated, and every elf that you glimpse as you tiptoe past open doorways and windows has clearly been enslaved and turned into a slave warrior. It seems that all the Wood Elves are now in thrall to the evil power that you hope to find and defeat. I'm not convinced that I could find and defeat Mr Blobby at this point. Lower down the tree there are fewer branches and no helpful elvish constructions. You are forced to jump from limb to limb and eventually you fall. Roll three dice. If the total exceeds your skill, the difference between them is the total number of points of stamina that you must deduct as you crash through the tree's branches on your way to the forest floor. Okay, so first d6 roll is a five. That's unhelpful. If I get two ones, I can still avoid taking any damage. So three making eight, and the final dice is a three making eleven. So that's not too bad, actually. It's only four points of damage. So straight back down to 17. Time to test the old luck. Luck is now 10. 6. I am lucky. My luck is now reduced to 9. You land on your feet and roll forward onto your hands. You feel shaken, but you are not hurt. You check that all the equipment in your backpack is intact. My lonely torch. And then you decide to get away from the elves tree as quickly as possible. You run across the clear ground that surrounds the elves' towering tree home and plunge into a deep undergrowth. You turn to look back and are appalled to see the entire Wood Elf tribe is on the move. An endless line of ragged, mindless slaves, some leading bizarre reptilian creatures, emerges from between the roots of the great tree. The queen at the head of the column turns and gestures with her fingers. Suddenly, surrounded by a misty illumination, the Wood Elves are restored to a more normal appearance. Then the Queen leads the column northwestwards towards Klein Castell. By the time they have all gone, the forest birds are announcing the approach of dawn. You are ravenous. Eat a meal from your provisions or lose four points from your stamina. Four points from my stamina, please. Mm. Delicious, delicious starvation. 
You set off eastwards, determined to find the source of the evil that has transformed so many of the forest's inhabitants. The forest is full of noises, the tramp of marching feet, the roar of animals. Armies are on the move, and you keep under the cover of the undergrowth, as the paths that cross the forest are full of slave warriors. You see squads of humans, goblins, elves and dwarves, as well as other nameless creatures that the forest has hidden until now. All are blank-eyed, expressionless, mindless thralls, silent except for the sound of their footsteps and the weird cries of the scaly creatures that accompany them. They are marching to the west, towards Klein Castell and the rich settlements beyond. Your eastward path branches. You come out of the forest to read the signpost. One wooden arm points north and is inscribed Horfak and Derlin Mines. The other points east, saying Cleaver Mine and Throke Mine. Which path will you take, north or east? So I've got no information about the Horfak and Derlin Mines or the Cleaver and Throke Mines, so... My decision is basically just going to be which one sounds more like actual human names. So I'm going to go for the cleaver and throke mines to the east. The path takes you out of the forest and into lightly wooded hills. You pass beneath the branches of a tree and hear a raucous shriek. You look up to see a colony of four corven perched above you. They spread their wings and glide to the ground in front of you, blocking your way. Corven are reclusive forest dwellers. You have heard of them, but have never seen them before. They're small humanoids, resembling evil-faced goblins with claws instead of feet and feathery wings instead of arms. You observe that even they have been captured and enslaved. Each wears a stone talisman on a leather thong round its long neck. You cannot defeat four of them together. At the moment, I doubt I could defeat one of them on their own. Will you turn off the path and head for the thick woodlands to your right, or will you turn off the path to your left, up into the rocky hills, hoping to find a defensible position? Let's try and find a defensible position. Maybe if I'm very lucky, there'll be a rock I can use as an improvised weapon. You scramble up the boulder-strewn hillside, hearing the beat of wings as the corven take to the air behind you. You find a crack between two enormous rocks and turn to fight the corven one at a time. First Corven has a skill of five and a stamina of five. So, um, armed as I am with a pair of fists and the shakes, I still figure I should be able to take this one out. So, uh, with slightly less trepidation than I was expecting, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Corven. It hit me once, reducing me to 11 stamina. You find that the other Corven are reluctant to continue to attack you in such a confined space. You have time to look around and you discover that the gap between the boulders is the end of a dry stream bed. You can crawl through the gap into a narrow gully, almost a tunnel that leads uphill. As you do this, two of the surviving Corven strike. They land on your back, lacerating your flesh and soaring through the straps of your backpack. You force your way into the gully and safety. You have lost three stamina points. And your backpack, along with everything in it, has gone. So we wave goodbye to my one and only possession, the torch. And my stamina is now eight. If you are still alive, you have no choice but to follow the course of the gully. When it becomes too narrow, you emerge to find the Corven have flown away. Presumably to discuss what a genuine sad sack they've just mugged.
You are inside a semicircular palisade enclosing a flat area of dirt before the cliff that rises ahead of you. Scattered across the enclosure are derelict wooden sheds. A well-trodden track leads from the gate in the palisade to a hole in the face of the cliff. The hole is the entrance to the Horfak and Derlin mine workings, and also to the source of the slave warriors and the other creatures that have been terrorising the forest inhabitants. Do I misselect the exit from that section, or have I merely got turned around through my incompetent flailing through the forest? I'll find out when I go through it again, I guess. As you watch from behind a hut, another group of scarecrow-like slave warriors shuffles out of the mine entrance and heads for the gates. With them is a glowering, armoured beast with a low belly and a mountainous back crested with bony plates. When they have gone, you approach the dark hole. A torch flames in a bracket. You take it, and if you have a miner's helmet and a candle stub, you put on the helmet and light the built-in lamp. Then you enter the tunnels. The mine is disused and deserted. Some passages are blocked by fallen rocks. Only one trail looks well-worn. You follow it deeper and deeper into the mountainside. It leads you, finally, to a rough hole at the end of a narrow tunnel. You step through into a natural cavern. In the centre of this cavern stands three huge blocks of black stone, one laid as a lintel across the other two to form a massive gateway. You have found the portal. You stare up at it, rooted to the spot by an overwhelming sense of alien evil. Every inch of the surface of all three black stone slabs is covered with intricate hieroglyphics that seem to writhe in the flickering light. You try and decipher them, although you recognise none of the symbols. Your mind is filled with appalling images. A darkness that is darker than the darkness of the underground tunnels seems to hover round the edges of the megalithic slabs. You shudder as you feel the portal probing into your mind. Somehow you know that this monstrous gateway is old, as old as the rock walls that have hidden it for aeons, older by far than the humanoid races of cool. You shake your head, you know you must try to destroy it. Do you have a sack of igneolite? I do not, of course. So, uh, by blundering around incompetently, we have actually made it, as far as I can tell, to the final section of the adventure, so that's pretty cool. Whether or not I'm going to be able to do anything about this malevolent portal, pregnant as it is with cosmic Lovecraftian horror, uh, is another question entirely. You take a deep breath and step into the blackness between the towering uprights. Your previous mental torment was nothing compared to this. You are assailed by a malignant will that invades your mind, sweeping aside your flimsy objections and denials as it pursues your frantic spirit deeper and deeper into the recesses of your brain. Only the strongest of wills can survive the onslaught of the portal's coercive power. A ring of zombie warding will help if you have one. I do not. Roll one die five times. Is the total higher than your current stamina score? I really need the majority of these to come up, either two or one. Yeah, so first one is a one. That is pretty good. Second one is a six. That's very bad. I can already no longer manage it. I've just rolled another six. Hooray, I'm already over my stamina. Let's continue and see what my total actually is. Uh, a two, 
and another two. So my final total is 17. So that's higher than my current stamina score. In fact, it is more than double my current stamina score. Your will snaps. You scream in anguish and despair as you feel your memories being stripped away and then you feel nothing at all. You cease to exist. You are a slave warrior, a mindless minion of the warlord of the portal. So I don't think it's worth invoking the sausagey finger bookmark rule so late in the adventure. So that will have to be the end. Well... For all that that was an absolute car crash in terms of my ability to get through the adventure, I had a genuinely fantastic time with that one. I am super looking forward to playing through this off mic and delving into its secrets. There's so many wonderful little touches that I've already noted and I will probably note again in the final remarks because they tend to be written several days later when I've broadly forgotten what I've said during the recording. So I'm going to go away. I'm going to play some more Portal of Evil and I'll be back for you in just a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. I very much enjoyed recording that playthrough even though subsequent attempts revealed that I'd more or less taken the worst possible route available to me. It's gently amusing to me that I've probably thought about gamebook design much more than is strictly healthy. But yet, I still reliably make absolutely terrible choices when it comes to actually playing gamebooks. It doesn't matter. I really enjoy it when things go badly wrong, like they did with Portal of Evil. A cavalcade of disasters is memorable in a way that getting close to the end but missing one key item simply isn't. It's a bit like how my favourite bits of old Tony Hawk's skateboarding games was unlocking the bail videos. Sure, watching a person do cool tricks on a skateboard is entertaining, but watching people fall off a skateboard while trying to do a cool trick is reliably even more entertaining. I'm fortunate in that I can usually find my own failures just as funny as those which happen to other people. Now in gaming media there's a real art to building failure into your world. The key thing is to make sure that you provide something entertaining even when things go wrong and I think Portal of Evil does a really good job of that. Failures in gamebooks are actually quite hard to do well. You've got a very limited palette to work with in some senses. One classic technique is to do bad things to the people around the player. Pulling the wrong lever and launching a puppy out of a catapult, accidentally poisoning your mum, that sort of thing. The other is to take things away from the player themselves. Anything that drains your stamina, skill or luck is the simplest version of this, but of course you can take away items that the player has. Either ones you start with or ones that you've collected along the way. Losing stamina and luck are the least interesting but also the safest choices here. The player is already aware that these stats are resources and it's easy to see how they might be replenished. Scoffing pork pies and making good decisions can usually be relied upon to restore some stamina and luck. Skill is a much more difficult thing to get away with. Skill penalties feel a lot harsher because it's used rather more than stamina and luck in the mechanics and also because as players I think we tend to assume 
there will be fewer opportunities to repair the damage to your skill or to mitigate the loss through magic weapons and the like. One thing I like about Portal of Evil is that it does a really good job of making skill loss feel bad, but not too bad. And that's because the fights are mostly pretty easy, and that gives the author plenty of space to mess with your skill, either by curses or by taking away your weapon, both of which happened to me on my playthrough. Losing a weapon is a terrible thing, but ironically, being down four skill made me feel more confident that there would probably be a chance to pick up a new one. I didn't, of course, because of the terrible decisions that I was making, but even though the penalty was severe, it felt potentially surmountable in a way that losing that point of skill to the cursed comfort blanket really didn't. And it's always intriguing looking at how game books can punish the player without straight up murdering them. And items are a really interesting thing to consider because all items can theoretically be taken away, but all items are not created equal, just as skill, stamina and luck are not created equal. I very much like using provisions in this way. I said during my playthrough that provisions are more than healing, they are a resource that you can spend on other things and a supply that can be depleted without directly influencing the player's stats. With each provision only being worth four stamina, the loss of a single provision doesn't feel that bad, but it can rapidly stack up, and I think messing with provisions is a really great idea. There's nothing else in fighting fantasy that sits in quite this space, and that makes them a potent location for iteration. Provisions are secretly one of the best mechanics in the series because they open up this surprisingly large design space. And I love stuff like this, where even though not that much thought probably went into creating provisions as a mechanic, it turns out when you look at it closely to be a very, very powerful thing to mess with, either by handing them out or taking them away in all sorts of different ways. Still, regardless, messing with your character is very hard to judge, and I think Darville Evans does a great job of balancing the slaps and the tickles to avoid making it feel like too much of a chore to get through this book. Even though things were going terribly wrong at every turn, I still managed to have a reasonably lengthy adventure. I didn't feel as though I was batting my head against a brick wall. It helps that the book is generally well written. He's one of the better prose stylists in the series. A bit more wordy than Ian Livingstone, but he's got an evocative style that brings the world nicely to life without sacrificing pace too much. This was something that we saw with Beneath Nightmare Castle as well. He's good at creating a world that feels coherent and has a definite aesthetic. Whereas Nightmare Castle leaned hard on horror as a vibe, here we're in more traditional fantasy territory, and I don't think it's quite as well written as his first book in terms of atmosphere, but it's still really enjoyable. And we've got a lot of fantasy cliches in Portal of Evil, and I'm very much okay with that. Part of the reason I come to fantasy gaming is because I like fantasy cliches. While I like revisionist fantasy a great deal, and I'm entirely supportive of deconstructing the colonialist, misogynist, and racist tropes that have often simmered under the surface of fantasy literature, I also like stories in which orcs and trolls are evil with a capital E, and dwarves and elves are good with a capital G. Because the world is a confusing and frequently horrifying place, 
It's sometimes nice to escape to a fantasy world in which the divisions are unambiguous, while still being aware that these divisions often represent the unexamined prejudices of the creators and the society in which they create. I want to have my cake and eat it too, basically. I want to acknowledge and deplore what a massive racist Robert E. Howard was, but I also really want to read Conan stories. However, just because I'm broadly fine with cliché doesn't mean that the deployment of classic fantasy tropes is enough on its own. That's the thing with cliché. It gives you a structure that is pleasantly familiar, but you still need to put your own spin on it. It's the difference between writing a catchy three-minute punk song and just doing a Ramones cover. This is a roundabout way of saying that Portal of Evil does enough, and probably only just enough, to refresh the hoary old cliches of fantasy gaming. We've got savage goblins in the forest, but they're given a bit more depth than is typical. While they are clearly hostile in a general sense to humanity, they aren't hostile to the point of insanity. You can speak with a few goblins and even rescue a couple along the way. They are suffering the depredations of the slave warriors from the portal as much as anyone else, and they're prepared to forego conflict if that means a better outcome. I really like this approach because it also serves a narrative purpose, selling the threat of the portal and its demented master. You see the same thing with the wood elves you encounter, but in the opposite direction. Whereas circumstance has made the goblins move closer to humanity in order to oppose a greater evil, the elves have been subverted by that same great evil and turned into something unrecognisable. The underlying characterization of the goblins is still primitive outsider, and the underlying characterization of the elves is still mystical folk living in harmony with the forest, and both of these represent the prejudices of the fantasy milieu. They are, when you think about it, both forest-dwelling societies, but the elves are presented positively because they look like white people, and the goblins negatively because they don't. What Darville Evans does is build interesting twists on those cliches and make them his own. It's precisely because wood elves come with so much noble hippie baggage that seeing them turned into slave warriors is such an effective moment. It's the same with the dwarf thief in Klein Castell. Friendly dwarves are an absolute staple of fighting fantasy to such an extent that it's become a trope within a trope, and even something as simple as a fight with a footpad can feel novel if the footpad is a dwarf. Obviously, a dinosaur on a string helps with that too. The dinosaurs are the other twist Darville Evans throws into the mix. There's a lot of dinosaurs in this book. Darville Evans clearly had a big book of dinosaurs open on his desk while he was writing, and I'm fine with that. I think the thing about dinosaurs being transformed from people is a bit clunky and a bit weird. I feel bad enough about killing dinosaurs to begin with, and telling me that they're secretly people, that doesn't make me feel any better about it. Also, dinosaurs don't need any additional source to make them cool. Dinosaurs are cool because they're dinosaurs. They're like cats in that respect. I don't want a cat with a backstory, I just want a cat that I can stroke and fuss and repeatedly call a good boy, despite being fully aware that it's basically a murderous and self-obsessed psychopath. I think it would be much cooler if there were just dinosaurs on the other side of the portal, or if the portal was a link not to another world, but to Titan's primordial past. 
I do like that the text confirms that dinosaurs are definitely exotic even though there's dragons. It doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. A dinosaur is mostly just a slow, stupid dragon that can't fly or breathe fire, but I appreciate making the effort. And regardless of the chicanery involved, I'm very happy to happen across a bunch of dinosaurs in a variety of different settings, especially as Alan Langford is the ideal person to illustrate dinosaurs that straddle the line between looking like something out of a textbook albeit a very out-of-date textbook when viewed from 2023, and something out of a comic book. His dinosaurs are extremely characterful. They're recognisable, but also very lively. They've got a lot of energy to them. I don't care for his humanoid characters anything like as much, but his monsters are reliably absolute bangers. The dinosaurs aren't generally all that tough to fight, which is fine, because it means that Darville Evans just gets to include more of them, and I think that's a very conscious decision and one I agree with. If you basically tell people there's dinosaurs in this, they're going to be expecting lots of dinosaurs, and Darville Evans is very happy to deliver on that front. We've talked before also about how you can use monsters as a form of world building, and this is a nice example of that. Even though the dinosaurs have only recently shown up in the world, there's still plenty of people who found ways to make use of them, and I really like that. The slave warriors are the main handlers, but it's clear that other people have seen slave warriors with a dinosaur on a string and thought to themselves, yeah, that seems like something I'd like to do. And honestly, if it were me, I'd be thinking much the same thing, except I wouldn't be using dinosaurs to mug people in the street. I'd be fussing them and telling them what a good boy they were. But it does tie into something that Darvel Evans does well across the book, which is presenting people whose motivations and actions broadly make sense, and that helps make the world feel well-rounded and believable. I think there's some nice NPC work in general here. You can find a wizard down at the south of the map, and he's probably the least interesting of them, as he cleaves closest to the standard fantasy Merlin via Gandalf archetype. He's going to set you some tasks, and if you make it through them, he'll be handing out some of the most useful items in the game. Elsewhere, though, you've got some more intriguing people you can come across. We saw the Forest Guardian, who turned all our metal items to rust. She's a nice little figure. Gloten, the mining magnate you run into Klein Castell, is quite memorable, especially as he's harbouring a not especially dark secret. There's also a former associate of the main villain, fallen on very hard times, and a bandit leader in the forest, but the standout NPC for me is the insane alchemist you run into in the middle to late stages of the book. He's obsessed with gold and keeping his gold safe, and he's come up with an alchemical plan to keep it safe forever, the only downside being that his solution is liable to entomb him and you with his precious gold for all eternity. It's one of my favourite versions of pretend madness, the monomaniacal focus on a single goal to the exclusion of all other considerations, up to and including personal safety. This is probably not the time to talk about representations of mental health in literature, but it is a vexed topic, and I prefer my lunatics in fantasy gaming to be clearly distinct from any depiction of real-world mental illness. And although there are people who become very obsessed with specific topics to the detriment of the rest of their life. 
I think with this kind of presentation, it's easier to see it as a fictitious mental illness rather than one drawn from real-world experience. Again, it has to be said, Crazed Alchemist is not an archetype that's wandered too far from the big book of fantasy cliches, but it's presented here in an interesting and fun way, and that's cool. Potentially even more interesting, but sadly underwritten, is the gold rush that lurks in the background and provides the instigating event for the portal of evil to be rediscovered. The necessity for every fighting fantasy book to have some kind of heroic stakes is a problem. I get why it's a thing. You want every fighting fantasy book to have the potential to stand on its own because you don't know what order people are going to read them. And that means that for fantasy stories in particular, you want to present a new player with a simple objective and one which makes them feel like a bona fide hero. Hence the world being imperiled by at least 20 different Dark Lords from adjacent dimensions at any one time. Now that would actually be a fantastic premise for a fantasy story. What if, instead of one world-threatening threat, there are actually a whole bunch all happening at once and all requiring a different magical doohickey to potentially resolve? But I digress. Dark Lords and the odd Dark Lady are a staple of fantasy literature, and it makes sense for fighting fantasy to use them liberally, and it's welcoming for newcomers, but it's wearing a bit thin for us old hands who've seen, by this point, more apocalyptic threats than the cast of Buffy and Angel combined. The Dark Lord stuff, even when it's quite fun, has a tendency to overwhelm everything else that's going on, and it can suck attention away from other good ideas. That's what makes books like Seas of Blood feel quite refreshing. You're just on a pirate ship race, and that feels like a very different prospect. And the absence of a big bad that needs to be described and shown through the plot leaves plenty of space for the writer to explore that core concept. I would love to see a version of this book that focused less on the slave warriors and more on the gold rush. Strapping on a sword and a backpack full of mining tools and joining the influx of people seeking fame and fortune would have made for a potentially very fresh-feeling story, and frontier stories are full of potential for adventure, as frontier towns inevitably bring in a slew of eccentrics, dreamers, chancers, rogues and villains. Uh, a corrupt and selfish pit boss would make a perfectly adequate final villain, and the chance to explore how a sudden flood of people and industry influences a previously unspoiled fantasy landscape would have been compelling. We see in Portal of Evil how the goblins become more sympathetic in the face of a larger evil, but with huge logging operations springing up to serve new townships, perhaps you could do something where the wood elves and the goblins are forced to do the unthinkable and join forces against the encroaching depredations of mining concerns. You could also do something that would be interesting with dwarves and the traditional dwarven lust for gold. This latest digression is a long-winded way of saying that there's some interesting ideas in Portal of Evil, but it feels a little bit trapped by needing to stick closely to the trappings of the genre. It's genuinely a really good iteration of your classic heroic narrative, but it feels as though there's a missed opportunity to do something a little bit more out there. Beneath Nightmare Castle was a standard fantasy story as well, but it's spiced it up with big dollops of horror, which has been a natural fit with fantasy going right back to the days of Robert E. Howard, but does make a book feel 
fresh and different and give it a very personal identity. I will say the final sections of Portal of Evil are very nicely done as you get to go to the exotic world on the other side of the portal and have a brief but impactful mini-adventure on the other side before facing the final boss. One of the sadnesses of the loss of science fiction stories from the canon is that we don't get a spiritual sequel to something like Robot Commando, the one where you get to pilot mechs and wrestle dinosaurs. There was so much more freedom to experiment with the science fiction stories and it's a shame to lose that freedom and experimentation simply because the books, by and large, weren't good enough. If the narrative is good but not great, the design is very smart indeed. It's one of those books that manages to make the nuts and bolts stuff look completely effortless. It doesn't beat you over the head with its cleverness like, say, Creature of Havoc does, but there's lots of neat little ideas been thrown into the mix. A really good example is a fight where you have to face a genuinely tough dinosaur and its handler. You start off with the dinosaur, but after three rounds, the dinosaur tags out and you face the much weedier dinosaur handler. What this does is give you that jolt of fear that comes from facing a really meaty monster, but it limits the actual damage it's likely to do to six stamina. Now, you could simply have some external factor intervene and kill the dinosaur after three rounds, but by segueing into a second fight, you get to combine the impact of a tough monster with the pleasure of winning a fight. And winning fights feels good. It's neat and I love it. There's lots of nice combat tricks sprinkled through the book. Um, the mace-tailed Ankylosaurus has only four skill, but deals six stamina with every sweep of its massive crushing tail. And it combines that threat with a chunky 12 stamina means that you're looking at six chances to get splatted unless you want to use your precious luck to try and shorten the fight. And I'm in favour of anything that incentivizes you to actually use luck in fights because the tendency is to hoard it knowing that you're likely to need to pass a luck test later on. Like most fighting fantasy game books, there's a whole bevy of items to find which will help you in your quest. Only a few are actually required. The rest simply make life a whole lot easier and none of them are hidden in particularly difficult to access locations. I found the bulk of them on my second playthrough. The game also does a really good job of flagging the important items early doors so that you know what you should be looking out for. The Ring of Zombie Warding is a great example of this, but there's also a magical sword that gets referenced well before the end. This is the sort of thing that many books try to avoid, and I get why they do that in Creature of Havoc. There was a secret door detector that triggered off a particular sequence of words in the text so that the book didn't have to ask you if you had a secret door detector and thus reveal to the player that there was a secret door that they should only know about if they've got a secret door detector. It's a curious feature of game books that asking the player about what items they've got reveals the existence of something else in the game world in a way that you could argue breaks immersion. I'm sympathetic to this view, but I'm not convinced it's actually worth worrying about in a format where you can return from the dead and restart the adventure as if nothing had happened, armed with the knowledge of the previous dead character, which you've no way in-game of possibly accessing. 
I think you can end up tying yourself in knots trying to come up with ways to try and narrow the gap between what the player knows and what the character knows. Immersion is all very well, but I think it's actually better to give the player some clues as to what they need to be looking for, particularly, and it's particularly smart if you design the items in such a way as to suggest a potential location for them. As soon as I discovered that there was apparently a wizard lurking down south, it occurred to me that a wizard might be a very good source for a ring of zombie warding, and so it proved to be. This tension between what the character knows and what the player knows is something that modern role-playing games also lean into a bit more than old-school games. The horror game Cthulhu Dark famously doesn't have a combat system, because if you try and fight the creatures of the Cthulhu mythos, the rules say you simply die. That gives the player actually a lot of information that their character doesn't know. If you're playing a character called Big Fighty Steve, who is an ex-boxer, that character might have a predisposition towards solving problems with liberal applications of knuckle. But you, the player, know that Big Fighty Steve is going to need to turn tail and run at the first sign of a bonus appendage. It works fine in practice, though, because what will actually happen is that whoever is playing Big Fighty Steve will performatively suggest that they should throw hands at the first sight of a mythos creature and then be reluctantly persuaded to adopt practical cowardice as a strategy by the other characters. Giving the player information doesn't have to break immersion so long as you're creating a vibrant and exciting game world. I think there's a lot of writers in game books who should be less concerned with the nuts and bolts of how the player might be able to cheat the game and worry more about creating a world that the player really wants to explore thoroughly so it doesn't matter whether or not you've offered them the choice to cheat, they're still going to go back and rummage through your game world for the sheer joy of it. So yes, I think worrying about what the player knows is a bit of a blind alley all the carefully crafted realism in the world won't help if your book is a chore to play because the solution to every problem is concealed behind mysteriously oblique hints and there's no way forward beyond meticulously combing through the book inch by inch like a Dungeons and Dragons party methodically dismantling a room because they're certain that there's a magic item secreted somewhere in it. No matter the game's master's commitment to only telling the players the things their characters could reasonably know, if you're running that game, you are almost certainly going to tell them that there's no magical item to find, at least after the first hour or so. Portal of Evil balances these nuggets of information by playing a rather different game with the provisions, which you can only eat when the text allows, which is something that is more realistic than the rules presented in the core fighting fantasy book, which just make some vague references to not being able to eat provisions while in combat, but doesn't specify, for instance, that you can't eat provisions whilst falling off a cliff uh, in the hope that you can mitigate the damage at the bottom by cramming sausage rolls down yourself on the way down. And here, Darville Evans has chosen to specify exactly when you can eat provisions, and he does a pretty good job of making it so that the opportunities to eat provisions are scattered frequently through the book and indeed are required at some points because he's also treating provisions as a resource. But at the same time, that also comes at a cost because there are lots of opportunities 
to eat provisions where he doesn't give you that opportunity. So you give, you take, you balance it as best you can. There's also a pleasant balancing act with the extra information you're being given and the relatively forgiving difficulty of the adventure more generally. There are a fair few ways to die instantly, but all of them feel obvious in retrospect, which is key, and the game is more inclined to give you a slap rather than simply kill you. There's a wonderful bit of design with a knife-throwing ordeal late in the book. It's a luck test. Fail the test and you'll get hit by some knives, so then you have to roll a d6 for the damage you take. And if you roll a 6 for the damage, that means instant death. And that's a superb way of mitigating the downsides for failing a luck test while still making the experience feel actually dangerous. You know that your life is on the line, even if sudden death is actually very unlikely. All in all, Portal of Evil is one of the stronger entries in the franchise, even if it doesn't quite meet the same heights as Beneath Nightmare Castle. The 30s haven't been the strongest patch for the series as a whole, so this is a welcome bright spot amid what is otherwise quite a mediocre run. If you haven't played it, I suggest tracking it down, either as a physical copy or, since it's really quite pricey, finding a PDF online. It's not like the author is getting a cut of the money you spend on it after all. That's all for this episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the promised science fiction game book written by a patron, which I've actually got time to delve into properly this month. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon. Music